when you're shooting for a goal in life, I'm not just talking about like in sports, but if you're shooting uh, for any kind of goal, a career goal or a character building goal, it's really nice to have a target, isn't it? Some kind of, some kind of model uh, to, to style yourself after or someone you might want to emulate in life. Someone maybe who's gone in the territory that's uncharted for you and they can give you some advice, right? Um, some models in life become so exceptional at what they do that they lead, leave the pack behind and become more than just a model, they become an icon. So an icon is a person who is so good at a particular thing that they represent the whole field in which they're an expert. So for example, I mean, a no-brainer might be uh, Michael Jordan, um, or maybe if you're younger, LeBron James. So in basketball, if you were to see a picture of Michael Jordan or LeBron James, a lot of things might come to mind, but certainly you would associate them with basketball, uh, arguably the best players ever, right? Um, uh, in soccer, which is one of the things I love, Lionel Messi. I mean, when I think of Lionel Messi and maybe that other guy, Ronaldo, um, I, I think just head and shoulder, better than anyone else in the world, they represent the sport to me. Barry Bonds, of course, represents steroids. I mean, baseball to some degree. Um, or when we see an icon like the 12th man flag, we know that that 12th man flag just represents the entire fan base of the Seattle Seahawks. It is an icon. It is a, a symbol that represents something much bigger than itself. Well, what if someone wanted to create an icon that represented God? Another way to say that might even be, what if God wanted to create an icon that represented himself? What might it look like? What if I were to tell you that God did make an icon to represent himself, and you see that icon every time you look at another person or you look in the mirror? Okay, don't leave. It's not heresy yet. Okay, listen. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man or humanity in our image. You know what the word for image is, don't you? In Greek, it's icon. Iconos. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image, in our icon, according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over all the cattle and over all the earth and over all the creeping things that creep on the earth. Like, that's all the stuff. God created mankind in his icon. In the icon of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Men, women, boys, girls, created in the icon, the image of the living God. We are his image bearers. This should not be new to you. I come back to this all the time because it's so important. Got to know who we're created to be if we're supposed to know how we're supposed to live, right? We are created by the creator to reflect his creativity and his rule in the world. We rule with wisdom, or we're supposed to, and grace and power over all creation. This is our true calling, our true purpose. And before the rebellion of humanity against God, this is how humans lived with God in the Garden of Eden. His icons, his image bearers. What happened? Either God is not that special, and we're doing a good job at being his icons or his image bearers, or these icons are severely broken, right? Now, 
I want to say, I think you are, are a wonderful bunch of people. And in fact, some of the finest people I've ever had the pleasure of doing life with. But you and I, we are broken image bearers of God. We've got issues, right? We're cracked icons. It's with this background in mind that we enter the text this evening. The text we're going to enter comes right on the heels of Jesus going into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He sees the corruption of the temple. He condemns the temple. And now he's about ready to face controversy after controversy after controversy with the religious leaders. Would you stand with me, please, as we read the first part of this text? Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. It goes like this. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you're truthful and teach the way of God in truth. You defer to no one, for you're not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed. And leaving him, they went on their way. Lord, uh, we thank you once again for your word. We every week come under it. We want to submit to it. We want it to be more than information and interesting things. We want it to be more than a history lesson. So we pray that you would take this word and that you would make it come alive in us, that you would convict us where we need conviction, comfort us where we need comfort. Take up residence in us. Be God over us, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. From the very beginning of this saga, we know that the Pharisees have ill-conceived plans for Jesus. They plotted together that they might trap Jesus. That word trap is a funny one. It's pagidusosin. That's just fun to say. Let's say it together. Pagidusosin. Pagidusosin, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you just put that in your back pocket next time you're at trivia or something. What it means is, pagidusosin is the Greek word for a kind of a snare, that you would catch a wild animal in, okay? So they set a trap for Jesus, trying to get him to say something where they could uh, capture him, to discredit himself in public. So what do they do? But in public, they come up to Jesus and bring up one of the most controversial issues of the day, Roman taxation. You see, in the first century, Israel was not a free nation, it was enveloped into the Roman Empire, just like so many other nations under the fist of Caesar. The poll tax that they're referring to was a humiliating way of Rome reminding them that you're not your own, that you belong to us. Every living man, woman, and child had to pay this poll tax once a year. Now, 
unlike the other taxes, because there were lots of other taxes, there were commerce taxes, and uh, every time you crossed a border, you had to pay taxes, all this kind of stuff, but the difference is on those taxes, sales tax and um, uh, uh, duty and all those kind of things, the Jews could use their own coinage. So even if they're interacting with Roman people, they could use kosher coins, which had no inscriptions on them, no images on them. But for the poll tax, it was required that the Jews pay with a Roman denarius. And here's the problem. First, by paying this tax to Rome, they were helping fund a pagan king, a pagan culture right? A polytheistic culture that was in direct opposition to the teachings of the Bible. Second, to add insult to injury, the Roman denarius itself, just having the coin, was a breach of Jewish law. The Jewish law said that you couldn't create images or icons of people, of animals, or of God, that it was forbidden to do that. Now, the reason for that, of course, isn't because God doesn't like art, The reason is because when those commands were given, the surrounding nations were idolatrous. They would represent an animal like a cow or a calf, and they would worship that thing. And so God knew how susceptible people were to that. So he said, you know what, let's just do away with the icons. Don't make any images, because I know you're prone to worship those images. The Roman denarius was particularly offensive, and Joe's going to put a photo up here. And while he's doing that, let me just talk a little bit about the word denarius. It's a Latin word, of course, because that was the language in Rome. And at the root, it means, uh, it, it, it means containing of. And here's what it meant. The denarius was originally meant to represent ten donkeys. Denarii, ten. It contained the price or the value of ten donkeys. And, and as language morphed, that's where we get uh, the, the Spanish word like dinero. It comes from this denarius, right? It just, it just came to mean money. Anyway, the reason it was so offensive is first because it bears two images. On the left, you see the front of the coin with the face there. On the right, you see the back of the coin. And the, the woman sitting with the staff is actually Livia. That is... Uh, Tiberius Caesar's mother. So we've got a graven image on this coin. And then on the front, you see Tiberius Caesar's face. And I don't know if you can make it out, but around his head is a laurel of olive branches. And this is classic style. He's styling himself as a Greek god. The inscription says, T. Caesar Divi Og F. Augustus, which is shorthand for Tiberius Caesar. Worshipful son of the divine Augustus. Basically, this coin to a Jewish person is an icon. It bears the image and title of Tiberius Caesar. It was a physical reminder to every living soul in the Roman Empire that Tiberius was to be worshipped as son of a god. The son of the divine Augustus Caesar, his father, of course. Now, thank you, Joe. What the Pharisees ask Jesus in public is designed to trap him. They take a very complex issue, right? Because the the Jews had to live under this oppression for years and years before Jesus was on the scene. It's a complex issue. And just like, you know, like a sleazy tabloid reporter who likes to corner people and then ask them a really simplistic black or white question to a complex issue, that's exactly what they do to him. Is it right? Is it legal to pay the poll tax. Well, 
of course it's legal. It's the law. It's the Roman law, right? You had to do it. Their question really means, is it biblical? Is it okay with God, under the law of God, to pay the poll tax to Caesar? Well, the tension is obvious. If Jesus says, no, it's not biblical, it's not right, then he would gain support of the Israelite rebels, but he would incur the judgment of the empire and be, be viewed as a national threat. All right? We might say he's a threat to national security. All right? If Jesus says, yes, of course it's lawful, then he alienates the dangerous revolutionaries who were against the tax, and he seems to side with Rome while breaking the Ten Commandments. How can this teacher, uh, Jesus, how can this Messiah break the law of God? What's he going to do? Well, Matthew tells us that Jesus perceives their malice. Why, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? And this is so cool. He says, show me, show me the, the coin for the poll tax. All right? Brilliant. So they bring him this pagan coin bearing the icon of Tiberius Caesar, which means, of course, that they have this coin on them, right? And I imagine the scene like, well, show me the, show me the coin, because what he's saying is, I don't have one. You must have one. So you, they, they bring it up, and I, I'm just totally reading into this, but it's way more fun if you do it this way. Um, <laughs> Jesus might take it like this, like, thank you. Whose inscription is on this? Whose face? And what does it say? And you get to see them going like, ah, oh, dang, Caesar's. <laughs> okay, now remember, they asked him one question. Is it lawful or not to pay the poll tax? Now watch his reply. He gives two responses to this oversimplified question. First, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Right? The emperor is governor of the empire. He provides the stability of your region. He provides the courts where you go to get justice. He paves the roads. He builds the aqueducts, all those fine things that you're enjoying. And because you can get your goods across town on those roads, you know, the government provided those things. Tiberius Caesar issued these co coins with his own icon on them, with his own self-styled idolatry. Give this worldly leader what is his. Pay him his image-bearing coin. It belongs to him. Now, that could have answered their question, but that's not good enough for Jesus. Now watch what he does. Second, give to God the things that are God's. Check this out. If these coins are icons of Caesar, then you are icons of God. Caesar is a ruler. Romans tells us that the rulers are subject to God. God uses them, uses the governments to his own disposal, which is really confusing to me, but he does. They are instruments. Pay the government the government's coin, but give yourself. You are an icon of God. You give the icon of Caesar back to him. You are an icon of God. You give yourself to God. That's what you were created for. Now, it was such a brilliant answer that the crowds, as, often, as they often were around Jesus, were just amazed. And once the Pharisees were stumped, they kind of withdrew a little bit, and the Sadducees came up for their turn to try and trick Jesus in public. And, 
That's actually the text we looked at last week, where the Sadducees came up to Jesus and wanted to trick him by raising a, a, a paradoxical question about the resurrection. Uh, if you missed that last week, I'm sorry, it's online, but we've got to move forward, okay? I, I thought that that deserved a whole sermon last week. So, okay, so what we have now is Jesus stumping the Pharisees with the poll tax question, and he's just faced the Sadducees with the resurrection question and come out on top of that one. And now we pick up the story in Matthew twenty-two thirty-four. It goes like this. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. By the way, that word, gathering together, it's synagogue. It's a gathering together. Um, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So here's the scene. From this group now emerges what's called a scribe. And this guy was a religious expert in the Bible. So he's a Bible expert. But he's also, remember, in a, in a, in a society where the law book for civil law was actually the Bible, he was a lawyer. So he knows the laws really well, but he also knows how to apply them. It's his job to know how to apply them to cultural situations. The rabbis counted over 600, I think like 613, who's counting? Uh, they were actually, uh, 600 plus individual laws in the Hebrew scriptures, and they often debated each other over which one is the most important. Here they asked Jesus which one he thought was the most important. Surely, he would have to alienate somebody with an answer, right? There's 600 different laws, there's probably uh, at least a dozen different opinions on which ones are the most important. He's going to tick somebody off with his answer. And he just says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Of course, for his answer, Jesus, as he often does, goes to Scripture, quotes Deuteronomy 6.5, which was known as the Shema. Every Jewish person, man, woman, child, would recite the Shema first thing when they woke up in the morning and last thing before going to bed. It was ingrained in the Jewish daily culture. The icons of God are to love the one whose image they bear. Right? That, that makes sense that the great commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And when Jesus says love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, he's not like thinking of a picture of a person and he says, okay, love with your, your heart and that's this part of the body and then your soul is over here and your mind's over here. This is a way, uh, kind of a Hebrew way of saying all of you. Every faculty that you have, love God with all that you are. Now, Jesus knows a thing or two about people since he created them, right? And he knows that religious people are prone to think loving God is confined to what we do in religious settings. I love God. Of course I do. You know how I know? I read my Bible, and I, re I, I recite the Shema twice a day. Or I love God, I pray at the temple. Or I love God, I go to church regularly. Or I love God, of course I do. I tithe at my local church, and I give a little extra to charity on the side. Great. And so we should, right? Uh, but just so that our devotion to God doesn't become something we could check off a list of religious things to do, Jesus adds a complimentary answer. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
on these two commandments, loving God with all you are, loving your neighbor as yourself, on those two commandments hang or depend all the law and the prophets. That's a shorthand way of saying the entire scripture. Once again, when his opponents ask him a mono question, he answers in stereo, right? They answer, what is the greatest law? He answers with two that complement each other. They, they can't be separated. In other words, if you love God with all you are, then you will love those who bear his image, his icons, his image bearers. And since you yourself are an icon of God, uh, you're, only to, you're able to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And that's the key, I think, to loving God. It's more than just a private religious devotion. In fact, the Apostle John implies that you can't have the love of God in you if you don't have love for your neighbor. Convicting words. Now, the cool thing about this passage is it, it doesn't just teach us. Of course, it does that. It teaches us what Jesus thinks is the most important. But it is also a not-so-subtle dig on the Pharisees who were known for their high religious standards, but their outright neglect of the poor and powerless. To put it in our present context, even if we go to church or read our Bibles and pray, we're not truly loving God unless we're growing and loving our neighbors. Unless we share our financial and spiritual blessing with others, unless we share the good news of Jesus and word and deed, unless we share bread with people, right? Fellowship, hospitality. The inseparable twin commands of love God and love neighbor that all the law and the prophets hang upon. Scripture says they literally hang on these two things. Thinking of, uh, you know, a garland that might have two pushpins in it. If you lose one of them, it just kind of swings. It doesn't look very good if it's just vertical, right? So you need, you need the two pillars for it to hang upon. That is love God and love neighbor. Everything else hangs uh, from those two central pieces. Do we love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, everything that we are? Sometimes, which is a fancy way of saying no. Do we love our neighbors as ourselves? I've had some good moments in my life. But if you look at the other side, I'd have to say, no, I don't love them as myself. What are we to do? I mean, come on. Seriously, when you hear that stuff, if you don't just let it wash over because that's the Christian-y sermon that you're supposed to hear, but when you really think about it, do I love God with everything I am? Do I love my neighbor, meaning every other person, just as I do myself, the same way? The same way I pamper myself? Of course not. We, I've never met a person that comes close to this, right? So what do we do? Every day seems to be a losing battle with my ego and selfishness and pride. We've never seen, you know, I, I started this message with, it, it's nice when we uh, have a goal to have a model to go after, an iconic person who, you know, uh, could point the way for us. I've never seen anybody do this well, love God with all that they are all the time, love their neighbor as self all the time. We need a model if we're going to hit that goal. And of course, that's what Matthew has been saying now for 22 chapters. 
There is one. One model human that is so far above the rest, he's reached iconic status. He is the icon of icons. He defines the lot of us. Even more than Michael Jordan or LeBron are icons for basketball, so Jesus is the icon for humans. He is the iconic icon. And yet, this thing that we call faith in Christ or discipleship or Christianity, it's more than just emulating Jesus. Okay? I know a lot. I was one of these kids that had people I emulated in athletics. You know, you can try and be Michael Jordan or uh, Marshawn or Russell Wilson all that you want. You can try your socks off. Most of us, less than 1% will ever play a professional sport or professional, you know, musically, unless, well, I know now you can just like, I could go on YouTube right now with my bass and twang-a-twang, all right, Jason? And uh, I could be professional if I got a dollar for that, but you know what I'm talking about. Be elite. Such a tiny fraction of the world can do that, no matter how much we emulate our models. Thousands of people who look up to a musician, try out for American Idol, one person is chosen to get a record deal, and usually those people fail miserably after that, right? Like, who's heard of these people after that? We need more than a model is what I'm trying to say. We need a savior. We need more than just a person who we strive to be, because that would be very frustrating if you tried to follow Jesus very long. We're not very good at it in our own power. We need transformation. Israel knew this. The prophets promised a Messiah, a Savior. It was believed that the Messiah would be the son of the great King David. That means, that means being the Messiah being thought to be a son of the great King David means two things. One, that he would be a blood relative of David. Right? You'd be able to trace his genealogy all the way back to David. Two, that he would rule in kind of the character and style of, of David, who was a warrior and a, a poet, a bard, if you will. I mean, the guy was a musician and, and wrote the Psalms, a pretty amazing character. He was a man after God's own heart. He was wise. He was a king. This was the expectation. Now, after being asked, three questions in public where these religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus, Jesus now turns the table on them, and he questions the questioners. It reads like this, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Christ, of course, is the Greek word for Messiah. Christ is not Jesus' last name, popular to, uh, uh, contrary to popular belief. Uh, It's also not the end of a swear word. It is just a title. So Christ means Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew way of of saying that, okay? What, uh, so what we mean is Jesus the Christ. And you'll often hear me say that, Jesus the Christ. Jesus is his name, and he's the Christ or the Messiah. So Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, well, the son of David. Of course, We've established that. Good. Jesus is getting the base level there for his argument. That's a good orthodox answer. The Messiah should be the son of David. Well, then he says to them, how does David then in the spirit, meaning inspired from Psalm 110 that Wayne read earlier, how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So here's the scene. David is talking about the Messiah who's supposed to be a son of David, right? And in this 
psalm, he's got the Lord, Yahweh, talking to this Messiah, whom David refers to as Lord. The Lord Yahweh said to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under my feet. Jesus quoting Psalm 110, which by that time, and we know this from rabbinic writings, okay, that it was considered a messianic psalm. That means that Jewish teachers viewed Psalm 110 and others like it, such as Psalm 2, Psalm 41, Psalm 72, as having meaning in their own time and place, their own context, but also pointing to something in the future, right? A double reference, okay? messianic psalms. And what Jesus is trying to do is open the Pharisees' minds to a new category of thinking, which I didn't even think about this until right this second, but isn't that just so loving of Jesus, I think? Here are these guys who are trying to trap him in public to discredit his name. You know, he could have just said, forget you guys. I am not going to tangle with you. I'm just going to go to people who like me. He's so compassionate that he takes the time to try and teach them something, to try and open their minds to receive the good news. I wish I was that charitable. Popular belief was that the Messiah would be a human being from the line of David who would rescue Israel, Israel from her political enemies. Okay? But what if the Messiah was more than that? What if God wanted to fulfill the messianic promise by becoming the model icon in the flesh? He, he made us as icons. He realizes that we've got it wrong. We're all cracked and broken. We need a model. We need some help. What if God became the ultimate icon, put on flesh and said, this is what I meant when I created you. This is the goal. Which is exactly what Matthew says in the, in the beginning of his gospel, uh, that Jesus is Emmanuel, the with us God, right? And what if this God-man wanted to rescue not just Israel, but the world? And what if he wanted to rescue the world not just from political enemies, but from the ultimate enemy, which is death itself and sin, which causes death? Can I get an amen? Wouldn't that be amazing? If this were true, then David would surely have to call this son Lord and God. Matthew concludes this with, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. I know it kind of reads like a fable or something, right? And that's why you don't ask Jesus questions. Um, okay. <laughs> right? Anyway, the one-armed man, right? Okay, sorry. <laughs> On one level, these passages are meant to teach us the supremacy of Jesus. I mean, if that was the only thing we got out of today, amen. Like, this Jesus, sometimes he's portrayed as kind of this, this pansy guy that says ohm all the time. I don't know what you think, but he is so wise and so with it, and so worthy to be trusted and followed in every aspect of life. If that's all you got, good. But there's so much more, so stay with me. He is the true Messiah. He was crucified. He died. He was buried in the grave for three days, raised from the dead into resurrection life, into a body that cannot die. 
If you haven't dealt with death recently, that's a great pipe dream. It's something cool to look forward to. Sitting at a bedside this last week in Louisville, Kentucky with my grandmother, that was her hope, right? That was her hope. Resurrection into a body that is incorruptible, that does not die and suffer. Jesus then ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. And he now, right now, he rules and he reigns over us. He's been vindicated over his enemies to fulfill Daniel 7. And that's the gospel. That through faith in Jesus, the ultimate icon, the complete image of the invisible God, you and I have new life. And I love this part of the good news, that it doesn't, this new life doesn't begin once we're six feet under. It can begin right now. It begins not when we die physically, but when we begin to die to ourselves so that we can live in Christ. The Lenten season that we're in right now, we're following Jesus on the road to the resurrection There is no other road to the resurrection than the cross. There's no way around it. Death comes, has to come before life. But the good news is that Jesus died on our behalf. He paid what we owe in terms of justice. And now he invites us to become who we truly are. Children of God, image bearers, icons of God. When people encounter a follower of Jesus, they should encounter someone on the road to the resurrection. They're not going to encounter anyone who's perfect, but they should encounter someone who is on the road to being perfected, right? That's just, again, another side thing. How are we doing? That's just another reason that we have this authenticity piece as a core value. You know, that's not just because like, yeah, just live however you want. That's cool. That's not what authenticity and acceptance means in our core values. What it means is let's stop wearing the masks that we're all okay all the time. What our friends and neighbors ought to see who don't yet know the Lord and what we ought to see from each other are not perfect people, but people who are being perfected. People who are constantly making the small decisions to die to ourselves so that we could live more fully in Christ. I think that that speaks a lot more to people than pretending that we're perfect anyway, right? Your sacrifice, the way you live a little bit differently around your family members and neighbors and coworkers speaks so much louder than, I'm fine all the time. We want people not to encounter religious pretenders, but people who are authentic and real in their commitment to following Christ. I never give homework, but here's some homework if you're a person who always feels gypped because you never get homework. Here's some homework. I encourage you to read this week, soak in, means read over and over if you can, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Of course, that's the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a glimpse of the life that we are invited to live into. Um, I don't want you to read the Sermon on the Mount and try and do those things. Don't take that wrong. 
I don't want you to feel ashamed about how far short you fall of the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what I invite you to do. Read the Sermon on the Mount and then pray with the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what uh, I invite you to pray with me as I do it too. Pray that Jesus, the model icon, the truest icon of God, would transform you and me from the inside out. That his very life, the Holy Spirit, would flow through our veins. And that he would make you and me more and more human. Right? Human as in that Sermon on the Mount style. The more and more human uh, to the point where we're not holding grudges with each other. Where anger doesn't control us where we can say no to lust, where we don't dehumanize each other, where our yes is our yes, our no is our no. We don't have to put on airs. We don't have to swear because our integrity speaks for itself. That's the kind of life I want to embody. That's the kind of life we were meant to have, and that's the kind of life in the power of the Holy Spirit Jesus wants to give. Right? Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for this all-encompassing good news And I confess, if I was living in a world that was war-torn right now, if I was living in a place where I I didn't take for granted that I was going to have food for my kids tomorrow or be safe walking to work, I'd probably be preaching and thinking a lot more of that world to come, of your kingdom coming and just turning everything upside down. Lord, help us to pray in that way as well for our brothers and sisters who have it a lot worse off than we do. Lord, we want to be real about where we're at. We are a people of privilege for the most part with great freedoms and great wealth relative to much of the world. And with that wealth and freedom, we have an ability to mask so many of our imperfections and our sinfulness. Lord, I pray during this Lenten season and really for the rest of our disciples uh, discipleship lives that you would come and fill us may your life glow in us transform us that you would fix the, the brokenness and help us to reflect the image of the living God in whom we were created Amen